On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Uh, understandably, there are pictures uh, across the front pages um, of Sinead O'Connor, and we'll be talking more about uh, the newspaper coverage of Sinead O'Connor in just a couple of minutes' time. But there's only one pick newspaper that actually leads with the Sinead story this morning. And that is the Irish Mail on Sunday. Uh, A mother who was brutally raped by a business tycoon has revealed how Sinead O'Connor saved her life. The singer's former housekeeper also claimed that the gifted musician lost the will to live after her 17-year-old son Shane died by suicide. Speaking extensively to the Irish Mail on Sunday as authorities in England investigate why the singer was found dead at her home, Calla Jackson-Craft explained, I was raped by a well-known businessman and then attacked by his son and when Sinead read about it in the newspaper, she tracked me down. I was very, very traumatised. I was a broken human being and nobody was willing to help me or believe what had happened to me as soon as they'd heard the name of the person who did it. Sinead believed me when no one else would and she also saw that I was an honest person. If she had not tracked me down, I probably would have died or walked into the sea, Jackson Craft said. Her kindness and her good heart and the inspiration that she was to me, that she could be so humble, having achieved so much and having been through so much, that she still had the time to look out for someone like me who she didn't even know. She saved my life because she gave me a job when I was at the lowest point of my life and she gave me the space and respect so that I could heal my own trauma, uh, said Calla Jackson-Croft. Uh, that's just one of the many remarkable stories that are dotted throughout uh, the papers today about the kindness and generosity of Sinead O'Connor, as I said, more of which we'll get to uh, in a couple of minutes' time. Um, elsewhere in the papers, the Business Post, Ministers to pay high price to avoid pre-election unrest. Uh, the government is preparing to spend at least an additional 1.25 billion euro to secure industrial peace heading into next year's expected general election. Well, you've heard it here first. The election is going to be next year. They're not going to clearly hold out until 2025. Uh, unions representing 376,000 public sector workers are going to demand pay rises that at least match the current 5% inflation in the forthcoming public sector pay talks. The current pay deal building momentum is due to expire at the end of this year and talks between unions and the government on a new pay deal are expected to begin in the coming weeks. Ministerial sources have said that there is little or no appetite within government to go to war with the unions. Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunne, who have been stressing the value of industrial peace. Public sector workers got an overall wage increase of 9.5% under the outgoing three-year deal. The final 1.5% pay rise is due this October. Uh, I would think I'd be right in thinking that ordinarily they can't do a budget until they know exactly how much they're going to have to put aside for public sector pay, which means that's all going to come to a head uh, pretty soon, I would think. Uh, The front page of the Sunday Independent this morning, uh, HSE halted probe into care home sex attacks by rapists. Uh, Obviously, it's a pretty um, sensitive story, so if you've got um, small ears listening, it might be best to just turn away for just a couple of minutes. Uh, The HSE told a safeguarding team to stop their investigation into the scale of potential harm caused to nursing home residents by a healthcare worker accused of rape. The order came to stop them after they had completed their work, an independent expert consultant has said. Um, you might remember uh, some reporting a couple of weeks ago about a 73-year-old woman who was referred to by the pseudonym Emily, um, who was sexually assaulted during the COVID lockdown in 2020 by an assistant who had worked at her HSE-run nursing unit for 16 years. And it was only after that incident and the fact that no one else could possibly have been accused of uh, committing the same assault uh, that resulted to the assailant ultimately being uh, apprehended. Uh, A team of social workers led by an independent expert, Marcella Leonard, was appointed to investigate whether other reportable incidents had occurred at the nursing home at that time. They identified 70 residents as having been exposed to the offender. Exposed to the offender, excuse me. Um, After 13 months, they'd reviewed 32 residents' files and they referred the cases of 21 women to Gardaí over suspicions that they might have been sexually or physically abused. But the safeguarding team had to abandon their review of the remaining residence files when the HSE instructed them to wrap up the investigation after 13 months 
because they felt it was taking too long. Uh, we might get into that uh, a little bit later this hour. Pretty striking stuff on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Uh, and finally for now, the Sunday Times. Airbnb listings soar amid record homelessness figures. So you'll all know the uh, increase in family homelessness that was reported again in the latest figures this week. Uh, in the meantime, there has been a 57% increase in Airbnb properties available to let in Dublin in the last year, uh, while the number of homeless people in Ireland has increased by 20%. Uh, properties actively listed uh, for short-term letting in the capital grew from 2,617 in June of last year to 4,099 in June of this year, according to figures compiled by AirDNA, which is a data analytics company. Uh, nationally, the number of properties in Airbnb grew 11% in the past year to twenty one uh, to 24,172, even as a record 12,600 people are living in emergency accommodation or in other uh, hostels, family homes, hotel rooms or B&Bs. Uh, also, finally for now, a sidebar on the Sunday Times, we will talk about this later this hour. <clears throat> Doctors in Turkey have blamed an overloaded Irish healthcare system as a huge driving factor in thousands of patients who travel to the country every year to undergo cosmetic and medical surgery. The Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland has issued a warning on its website about travelling to Turkey for surgery, warning that there is an element of risk in any surgery and that the department is aware of citizens who have had complications or even died after going to Turkey. Um, But yet, uh, Kanal Kali, who is the chairperson of Godzi International Hospitals, uh, which has seven locations across Turkey, says that facilities like theirs are helping the Irish healthcare system to breathe. In Ireland, you have to wait so long before all your tests like surgery, blood tests, ultrasound, etc. The number of patients we treat from Ireland helps the medical system in Ireland to breathe. It takes huge numbers off waiting lists, he says. Um, which I think is striking when you consider the number of people that are travelling for cosmetic surgery rather than uh, for things that are, are slightly less um, elective, if you like. But nonetheless, interesting uh, perspective from uh, that Turkish hospital uh, official. Uh, join us here to discuss those stories and more by Claire Rowland, who's a broadcaster with Ocean FM, and by Breda Brown, who's co-founder and communications director uh, with Unique Media, also chair of the Irish Writer Centre. Uh, good morning to you both. Thank you both for coming in. Um, it is difficult to go anywhere, really, um, other than to look at the um, extent of the Sinead O'Connor um, coverage across the papers. And Breda, I'll start with yourself. It is very difficult to know where to jump in. The one thing that strikes me is that having looked through all the newspapers this morning, there are so many examples and, and countless tales of very silent altruism and generosity being uh, recounted now that no one ever knew about while Sinead O'Connor was still with us. Totally. All acts of kindness. That's sort of the term that came to me this morning when I was looking through the papers. Um, and a, a few that we can we can talk about, I suppose. Um, Elaine Byrne has a really interesting and a lovely piece in the Business Post today um, about how she tweeted, this is going back years ago now, and some of these stories are going back over over the Mm. past number of decades. Um, She said there was a man in their church who was called James, who they all thought was maybe just a little bit odd. But when he died, um, Elaine Byrne's father and brother were his undertakers. And she was really worried that actually nobody was going to go to his funeral because it turned out he was bipolar and had schizophrenia. And she tweeted about this. And Sinead O'Connor got in touch with her and said that she really wanted to go to that funeral. Um, So if you have a read of the piece, it'll it'll get into more detail. But she did. She went. She was worried. Sinead O'Connor was worried her presence might distract. But she really wanted to go Mm. to sort of acknowledge somebody's life and somebody who who struggled. Um, And she did. And she went there, even though she had never, never met him. Um, So there's that story. And then we have Mary Carr has another Another yeah, it's a very good double spread page in the spread today, in, yeah. the, in the Mail on Sunday, which is which is really interesting. And and again, she's talking about how she um, she interviewed her once a number a number of years ago, and she was great and she was full of energy and life. But then the following morning, uh, Sinead rang her and she was plagued with anxiety and and was worried about how the story and everything might come out. So it was just sort of showing the the other the other side of her, I mm. suppose, and the fact that 
you know, what Mary says here, we all suffer, but some more than others. But Sinead just seemed to be the personification of, of pain. Um, and she really did utilise her her platform, I suppose, later in life anyway, to talk about mental health aspects, mm. which I know Claire is, is, is you know, is keen to, to talk about as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's you know, what's her legacy? I think her legacy are her acts of kindness um, as well as her <coughs> musical side yeah. of things. The other aspect in the papers today... The it's kind of funny of actually that you'd have the death of a, of a musician or someone who was best known as a musician mm. and actually that the you'd nearly almost think of her musical legacy as almost being secondary to yeah. her, her personality. Well, absolutely. Like, on the basis of what we're reading in, in the paper today and Brendan O'Connor has a piece on the front of the Sunday Independent as well talking about his sort of friendship with her and mm. how they would fall in and fall out occasionally and she wanted him to write her book at one point and he said no because we're definitely going to fall out if that happens but interestingly she said to him in a, in a text at one point um, she said I really do need to write the book and this obviously yes. became her book yeah. which came out in 2001 which was um, which was her memoir yeah. uh, she said no I need to have it in my own words because I don't want all of you making stuff up about me when, when I'm gone <laughs> yeah. which is interesting uh, I like that there's someone else who's writing about it as well who said that um, they, they were petrified uh, when they picked it up because they knew that she'd written it herself so it either could be brilliant or it could be terrible because no one knew her as a writer but lo and behold mm. turns out she was a wonderful writer I think it's actually by Alan English the editor of the Sunday Independent who's written a very nice piece uh, inside the pages uh, Claire Ronan um, I have to congratulate you before we even get anywhere because I believe you became a grandmother uh, I became yesterday. a grandmother yesterday <laughs> Thank you, what are you doing here? I know, I know. I was sort of thinking that at seven o'clock yeah. this morning. Well, well, but, yeah. well, thank you for, for fulfilling a, a pre-agreed <laughs> engagement at the very least. Uh, welcome to the vlog. I don't think you've been with us before. Um, where, where do you want to jump in? Because there is so much across the papers today. About um, well, uh, obviously, uh, the, the article by Mary Carr really struck me because, as Reed just said there, you know, she speaks about how she interviewed Sinead and she seemed so down to earth and lovely. But the next day she was racked with anxiety. And it gives an insight into the mental illness that she was not ashamed to speak about. And I know that the stigma, you know, we talk at how the stigma of mental illness has lifted. It hasn't. I mean, there are mentally ill people in every family in Ireland and people are reluctant to talk about it. And I think where Mary Carr's article in the Mail really, really highlighted the fact that Sinead spoke about something that people are still ashamed about and still keep very quiet and underneath the carpet. But do you know what amazes me about her? When you consider... Um, and it's mentioned in a lot of the articles today, she tore up a picture of the Pope and yes. 13 days later, <laughs> she stood up at a Bob Marley concert. I listened to the audio of it this morning and the whole place booted her. Yeah. And yet for a girl who was emotionally vulnerable or mentally vulnerable, she still went on to give her a message. She actually, you can hear in the audio, she says, turn up my mic so that she could be heard singing the Bob Marley song about the colour of people's skin yeah. and then ran off the stage into the arms of Chris Christopherson. That shows the strength of character mm. that Sinead has. Yeah. And that, I think, is why she she just left such a mark on people. But she begged, Gavin, all mm. the articles, she mm. begged for help. I, I watched her myself. She begged for help for herself. She begged for help for her son. Mm. In a way, I think one of the things that's sort of been missed this week is... I'm afraid, you know, her son was certainly let down. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it was very striking that one of the, the, the best newspaper front pages this week uh, was the Irish Examiner's piece where they had done the first, the upper half of the page oh, above yeah. the fold, if you like, uh, was this classic, very striking black and white image of Sinead and it was talking about her, her life and her legacy and then the headline immediately below that was that damning report that had come out the previous lunchtime about the, the state of young and mental health uh, 
children's mm-hmm. mental health services and and how you couldn't but see a link there that, that so, so much of her her last 18 months was was tied up in this this rack of, of how reliving and you know not being able to escape the trauma of losing her son in the circumstances she did and you, you couldn't separate those two stories no you couldn't and till the day I die I will never forget the visual image that she actually shared on Twitter of her son walking out the door of that hospital I mean she she died of a broken heart mm-hmm. and that really is all that matters in this whole story and it's all that's our business. There's a lot about Sinead, I think, that's not our business. Mm-hmm. I'd love, when you listen to some of her friends during the week, they said she'd find all this nauseating. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't like it at all. Yeah, and it is funny. I think we're a great nation at telling everybody how great they are after they're, after they're gone. Mm. You know, mm. we tend to ridicule a bit while they're here. And she was. She was demonised. She was seen as a laughing stock <laughs> at times. Um, well, d- d- this, is, this is a question that's been sitting with me for the last couple of days because, uh, I mean, I, I know what I would like the answer to be, but in truth, I don't know what the answer is. And, and it's whether... Before she left us, whether Sinead O'Connor knew that actually in, in most of the campaigns and causes that she'd taken, that she had been vindicated and that most people belatedly had come around to her way of thinking, that she wasn't as much of a black sheep by the time of her death as she had been for a lot of her life. I would like to think so. And I think the memoir that came out only, you know, 2021, just two yeah. years ago, again, there was the, she, she got a huge amount of positivity, I think, around that. Um, and that was probably a time when people were, you know, she said she may have felt vindicated in, certain, in terms of what, what, what she stood for, mm. I suppose. Um, and it took a while for that book to come out, you know, mm. and, and the, some of the papers were saying yesterday, she, she just up until the time she died, she was considering a, a movie, a film version of it, which would have mm. been fascinating to see had it, had it happened, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think... see somebody else portraying her. I just can't, can't imagine I anyone else being able to yeah. But you know, and again, I was thinking about it as well during the week. And yes, the words activist and and all of that, you know, but really she, because I was growing up, obviously, in in the 80s, early 90s, when all of this was was going on and and tearing up pictures of popes and all the rest. But she was a role model before the word role model actually existed in our lexicon, you know. And um, so now that said, growing up, I was sort of looking at her going, oh, my God, is she she's gone so far. And especially when you read... um, Daniel McConnell's piece in the Business Post as mm. well today, talking about when it was October 1992 when she ripped up that uh, picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and the chaos that ensued in the doll then afterwards, you know, with Michael Finucane the political angle actually. from Fine Gael, yeah. yeah, who said, you know, he wanted to refer to the incident in which Sinead O'Connor featured. I'm sure I speak on behalf of everyone when I say that I was appalled. You know, this is 1992. No. It's not that, that long sure ago. I'm sure you do think that you're speaking on behalf of everyone, but I think a lot of people yeah, wrongly presume they're speaking on behalf of everyone when and they're this, not. And uh, Danny McConnell's piece is interesting because it is a bit of a reminder how the backlash was immediate and the Catholic Church and, you know, all about, uh, you know, again, and again, I was growing up at that point. I was a yeah. young adult at that point. So you were sort of watching it. Interesting to see how far she would push and how successful it could potentially mm. be and how society, I suppose, and, and politics yeah, react. I actually th- think it's it's interesting just as a little sort of a side note how, how much the tearing up the picture of the Pope, how much it, when it was repeated that the original context of it wasn't understood, that if you watch back the whole thing now and you see that performance of her performing the, the Bob Marley song War and talking about the colour of people's skin and, and, you know, how some of what we perceive as difference is not the enemy or it's not the thing to be concerned about because there are other bigger concerns. And then at the end, you see her tearing up a picture of John Paul II. 
it makes some sense in that context but then all, all you heard afterwards was she tore up a picture of the Pope mm. yeah. and you didn't understand yeah. the, context. the context in which she did and it was yeah. all totally detached and then there. the whole angle of the fact that the picture was on the wall of her mother's house that mm. she had gone to take it out it made it look you know it was reported in a sort of seedy way like as if mm. she was trying to send all these desperate messages and in fact what she was saying was actually the truth but back to your original question that you asked there about do you think she knew how loved she was or how she was vindicated. Do you remember she appeared on The Late Late Show and she was vulnerable the last time she appeared on The Late Late Show, I imagine. The, you know those Late Late Shows where the whole country stops on Twitter, it goes into Overdrive or X Mm. or whatever it's called today. (laughs) Um, The whole country stopped and there was such an outpouring of love and I honestly hope, I really hope and I really thought that night Mm. she knew. She knew she was Mm. loved and she was not forgiven we understood what she was talking about rather than she was forgiven because she hadn't actually, she was ma- she was giving a message that in fact, unfortunately turned out to be true. Yeah, um, this this might be a very lofty question, but there's, there's a lot of writing today and there has been a lot of writing in the last couple of days and different biographies and different summaries of, of her life and her times. And they all refer to her being in some ways misunderstood. And sometimes people go, oh, she was kind of misunderstood by the Americans or the gesture of tearing up the Pope, for example, was misunderstood. But in truth, wasn't she misunderstood by a a lot of us? And we like to sort of think that she was misunderstood by others, but that we as a public were party to a lot of that misunderstanding for a lot of the time and that we were very late coming around to her side of things. Mm. And wasn't it so much easier to misunderstand her than to actually listen to what she was saying? I remember listening to her one day, I was driving the car and they spoke about God and she said... um, um, oh, there is a God. I, th- I think there isn't a God. And then she stopped and she said, actually, I know there is a God. And I was driving thinking, in one way, isn't she lucky? Because, you know, let's be honest, no matter how brilliant your faith is, in the back of your head, there's always, is there really a God? So it's interesting. Did we did we misunderstand her? I think mm. we had yeah. become we had come around to understanding her a and bit I th- more. I think again she was so different in that she was the sheep running away from the flock as opposed to running with the flock, you know. Yeah. And that's why she was potentially misunderstood because everybody wants to to go with the go with the flow, you know. Mm. So she but she and she never compromised, you know. She never backed down. Um and her activism she believed in what she was doing and that that conviction came across at all times. Mm. It was everybody else obviously said she wasn't misunderstood. I think you yeah. know, it, it, it's sort of convoluted trying to explain it, but she knew what she what she wanted and she understood herself. She did. Uh, we're going to be talking more about the uh, the life and times of Sinead O'Connor uh, later in the programme. And uh, we're going to be wrapping up. Actually, Donald Fallon's Hidden Histories today is about the Foggy Jew, uh, perhaps one of her most standout pieces of music and actually some of the, the history that's reflected in it. And uh, it really is um, our markup he's working. I'm looking forward to talking about that with Donald a little bit later. But there is much more in the papers, uh, which we'll be talking about with Claire and Breda when we're back after this. 11.27 this morning on News Talk. Gavin Riley with you on the record until one o'clock. Uh, lots of uh, twecks and tweets coming in. 087-1400-106 is the WhatsApp number. Um, one person has texted in to say that they saw Nothing Compares last night. That was the um, the documentary that broadcast on, on Sky Documentaries and is now available on, on Now TV. Um, that it was broadcast last night. There was I know there was a big decision around whether they would still air it at the scheduled time given her passing this week. Uh, but they decided to air it. Apparently drew quite a large crowd. I saw a lot of uh, people uh, posting very positive messages about it last night. One person says, I saw Nothing Compares last night and it's only having seen it that I can finally say, now I understand her. Only after seeing it. God bless you, Sinead, uh, says one texter. And somebody else says, people didn't misunderstand her. 
people were threatened by her, or at least perhaps they felt threatened by her. That's uh, from someone who signs himself off as a regular listener. Uh, joined in studio by Claire Ronan and Brida Brown going through the stories that are making the front pages uh, this morning. Um, Claire, that piece on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, I mentioned it in the, in the little wrap-up um, about... Um, the volume of people going to Turkey uh, for um, medical procedures, a lot of it cosmetic, some of it not so cosmetic. Um, and the testimony of a uh, Turkish um, hospital chairman who says that actually all they're doing is rather than, you know, dealing with cosmetic stuff or sort of being an extra bits on the side, that they're actually relieving the pressure on the overburdened Irish hospital system. Well, he certainly claims that. Mm-hmm. He says that um, in this article, he also says that uh, the delay getting to see a GP in Ireland is part of the problem here. So even blood tests are delayed where they're very organised over there. Now, what we do have to remember, and this is over two articles actually, that eight people are dead after surgery in Turkey. Mm. The majority <coughs> of people are going over for tummy tuck, for their teeth for breast implants and then the sleeve or the stomach reduction gastric band gastric band um, because it's so much cheaper and in the article they speak to one girl who um, is from Cavan she's 36 years of age and she arrived last week and within 14 hours she had a gastric sleeve that would have cost 10,000 in Ireland and it was 3,100 in Turkey now he also goes on further on in the article and he said for example if they're buying breast implants Ireland would be charged a thousand euro whereas they're only charged 500 euro for the actual implants so that's part of the reason that their prices are cheaper and also in Europe 60% goes of this price goes to the doctor whereas there it's only a third of the price goes to the doctor 80% of their clients are from the UK and Ireland look it's tre- it's called medical tourism mm, yeah. and from what I've read about it it seems that you sort of have a bit of a holiday now if you're having your teeth done they're shaved and you can only scrambled eggs so that doesn't make a great uh, culinary trip to Turkey. So explain that. So if, you, if you're getting the like the, 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 the special veneers done the basic, mm. but they have to shave back your original so they teeth. Shave, original teeth. Yeah, they yeah. shave your teeth down and then they put uh, okay. a veneer or whatever it's called on yeah. top of it and that's called the Turkish Hollywood smile. Yeah. And there is um, at the end of the article a man who brought his son over and then the man was so impressed with the work that the son had that he actually got his own teeth done. I was on a flight actually which had connected with the Turkish flight recently and I couldn't understand all these men had sort of sweatbands around their head mm. and oh, they had know, come yeah. from the hair transplant. Hair transplant. Yeah. Now in fairness you know if it makes people feel good there's mm. nothing wrong with this but we yeah, can't but keep we can't do it for the same price and also if you speak to any doctor it's very dangerous they say that A&E or ED have a lot of cases coming in and they have to yeah. pick totally. up Totally. And like at the end of the day, your health is your wealth. And, you know, do you really want to be getting on a plane, going to somewhere that's mostly unregulated from what I can see, um, staying there for a couple of days and then getting on a plane home, God knows what type of surgery you've had. There's no follow up. Um, and we've all had, you know, I've had enough surgery over the past couple of years to know that, you know, you want to make sure if there is an issue, you can go straight back in mm. and get get it checked out. Also, you're checking out who your doctors are, who your hospital is and to make sure you're getting the best that you can and can afford, obviously. Now, yes, of course, the public waiting lists are really, really long and that is an issue and something that the government are going to have to look at along with housing, obviously, with the next election coming up. Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, you want, if you know, if you wake up the next morning and there is an issue, you need to know that it can be fixed. Well, this is, I think, the point because sometimes I reckon that there's an element of false economy in this, that people think that, oh, if I wanted to get the, you know, the crowns or the veneers done or whatever it is, that it could cost you, 
you know, thousands or possibly even mm. tens of thousands to get it done and you go over there and you get it cheaper. But if you need follow-up or if it's the case that, as is often the case with these things, if you need them to be looked at five or ten years afterwards. And, to, and end up being redone. There was yeah. also a piece during the week where somebody had to get his whole whole mouth and teeth redone here because it failed after two or three years yeah. um, having gone to Turkey, you know. So I think you know and it seems to be an awful lot of the age groups are interesting there are younger people but also older people as well who who are travelling so look I would be erring absolutely on the side of caution but it's as you say tourism uh, tourism but it's not much of a holiday now if you're going to be in pain for, for well, you know the week and a half that you're over there Also so. if you have a pretty pretty limited diet because I didn't realise that you would be that that limited yeah. in what you could actually consume for all the time particularly if you're getting your teeth done obviously yeah. mm. But even to the extent that the journalist then writes that on the t- on the plane on the way home there were women in front of him and one was tapping her teeth and saying mine are a bit sore how are yours so it's an open it's not mm. that it was it's open everyone's talking about it openly yeah. having all those veneers on your teeth would be sore Absolutely um, yeah. and, and I think what what a lot of the Irish doctors would argue is that they're sent home very early. That's it. They're, they want to they're in and out kept, as quickly as yeah. possible. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then they end up in our emergency departments here and mm-hmm. then they have to pick up the slack and that's the problem. Um, and, so, and some of the issues actually as well have been like things like sepsis or an infection, mm. you know, will appear at an injection site or where the surgery site was. And that's those type of issues that, that, that require follow up and it's not happening. Um, Aer Lingus, which has been operating direct flights from Dublin to Izmir since 2010, that's four and a half hours of a flight, um, increased its capacity to four return flights a week between the two airports in December of last year, uh, largely as a result of the demands for, for medical tourism, including a lot of people getting cosmetic procedures. Um, <laughs> and then they get into the paragraph of the, the woman tapping her teeth, as you mentioned, Claire. Um, according to doctors, September and October are the busiest months for medical tourism in Turkey. But a lot of people now travel in June or July uh, for a holiday before their surgery. I would have thought, well, I suppose I understand the idea of not wanting a holiday after the surgery, particularly because if you're getting the a hair transplant and it can be quite tender or if your teeth are, are there, that it's not great. But you would think that actually there'd be something to be said for hanging around the country for 10 or 14 days afterwards so that if there was a short term problem that sure. you could go back in and get seen afterwards before you hop on a plane and suddenly you're five hours away from any aftercare. I would totally agree with you. I actually followed a girl's journey on Instagram recently because I sort of got, you know, the way you get sucked into these stories. <laughs> yeah. And um, she had stayed on for a while, but when she came home, she ended up having to find her. She had had a tummy, you know, the, the, the balloon in your tummy. And she ended up having to go to Vincent's and have a lot of treatment mm. um, afterwards. So I suppose if you were there for your two week holiday recovery, um, maybe you'd have aftercare. Now, they do stay in touch with you, apparently, by phone and WhatsApp regularly. Mm. But if you have a problem, so that's not, not great. Yeah. But the bigger question here is why are so many people engaging in cosmetic Procedures, well, I, you know, I that's a whole other society. Tap into that question. and see whether, like, the, there's just this kind of vanity seems like it's too strong a word, but that this kind of societal obsession, or, or it's a post Zoom thing. I and mean, I know, for example, a lot of people um, who I wouldn't have thought would ever have been in need of it, but who were basically living their lives on Zoom for two years mm. throughout the pandemic. Mm. And then after the pandemic was lifted, they thought, right, even the cosmetic practitioners called it the Zoom boom, mm-hmm. where there was loads of people getting fillers yeah. or Botox under their eyes because yeah. they were sick of looking at themselves for two years. <laughs> uh, but like, it, it's funny that it's like true. maybe that it's prompted this level of people yeah. just being so sick of the sight of their own face that yeah. they want to go and, and just social done. media in general, I think, because it's presented in such a, a positive, polished way that people presume this is the way that you're supposed to look. You know? I think there's a little bit more pressure as well to, you know, look more perfect than in our day. I mean, I don't remember anyone no. having... 
In fact, any surgery like that would have been a medical emergency sort of surgery. I don't yeah. remember people having face. We were just trying to track down blue blue uh, eyeshadow and pink lipstick. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. Day yeah. and pan concealer, you know, and that was as good as a Rimmel eyeliner, yeah. So glad I didn't grow up in that era of hint of a tint. There's so much other stuff to be thinking about. Sun in. Sun in. You know, I remember a a red-haired schoolmate of mine who got sun in and we were like, it's going to be obvious, bloke, because like, you know, you've got red hair. His hair was so red that it suddenly just didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) His hair was just that red uh, that it just didn't take at all. And that's a big spread by um, Julianne Corr, uh, who's done a big spread across pages one, eight and nine of the Sunday Times, if you want to read a little bit more about that. Uh, There is typically enough the usual dollop of um, politics around the Sunday papers, um, a lot of which, um, Brida, concerns the gold bullion held by the National Party and how exactly it is that a party that has never or has never apparently gotten much of a record of receiving donations on a significant scale and has never had to publish its accounts, how could even end up having uh, gold in a vault somewhere to the value of 400,000 in the first place? This is just the most, <clears throat> I don't even know how to describe it, <clears throat> odd, weird, strange, <clears throat> excuse me, story. You're right, we're all um, <clears throat> Take sorry, a sip, sip of water while you're doing it. Yeah. yeah, so for people who haven't heard this story, so Justin Barrett, the... The, I think the, the title that he's given himself, I think is president of the National Party. That's the title that they give to their party <coughs> leader. Um, took to social media this week uh, to observe that some people who had apparently betrayed the party and therefore the nation had taken gold from the party safe. He obviously didn't put the uh, a value on it, but it's been understood from other colleagues of mine doing reporting this week to be in the line of 400,000 euro. Now, you presume that's not the party's only wealth because you need a certain amount of liquid assets to be able to pay the bills and stuff. So presume they've got more than that. But the question arises as to how... There's too many questions well, if, around this, If you're Gavin, limited yeah. to receiving donations from any citizen in any year of two mm. and a half thousand euro and your membership fees are fairly modest and you're not putting all your membership fees into gold, how exactly a party of such well, limited means ends uh, up with such gold in the first place? Firstly, why is it in gold? And where did the gold come from? You know, did, did somebody donate gold bars or was it all, you know, the cash assets liquidised and turned into gold? But 400,000 is, is a huge mm. amount of money. And then, you know, piece in the uh, Mail on Sunday by John Drennan and he's quoting Senator Michael McDowell as well, who this week said, you know, if it is derived from donations or was donated, <clears throat> the question arises then, who were the donors and who were mm. the donors? So, and this brings in the whole SIPO conversation then, yeah. the standards in public office, where um, all donations and everything have to be registered and obviously a register of assets then as well for mm. each each of the, the TDs. So you, you have so to disclose, as a, a political party, I believe that you're required to disclose the maximum donation you can receive is €2,500, but there is a threshold of a few hundred quid beyond which you are required to disclose uh, the identity of any donor. So if the party in its uh, seven-year history has managed, I think it's seven years, <coughs> in the mid, mid, uh, mid part of the last decade, so they've only been around a few years and for them to have accrued wealth of that size, it, it would stretch credulity to imagine that there could have been that many donors Multiple beneath donors. the threshold. And look at the trouble that Pascal Donoghue got into recently over Postergate. Yeah. Um, and Damien English then as well in terms of his uh, situation with, with, um, with Sippo as well. But look, who are these people, I suppose, is, is the other question. You know, and Justin Barrett... Um, he ran in the, the last time he ran was in the Dublin Bay South yes, by-election uh, yes. in 2021 and he got 183 votes. Now, 0.7% um, of all votes, which uh, was quite minimal. He didn't run in the 2020 general election, mm. um, but the party put up nine candidates who between them all 
they got 0.2% of, of all of the votes, you know. So yeah. you, as you said, so where are all the donors coming out of the woodwork from then if, if this is the, the minimal amount of, of donations that, that they're getting? Um, so yeah, Regina Doherty then in the, in the Mail on Sunday as well is just saying, look, there needs to be an investigation into into all of this and everything needs to be um, registered obviously with, with SIPO. But there was a piece in one of the other papers, I think it was the Sunday Independent, I'm not sure, and there were sources saying that you know, Justin Barrett went to Donnybrook Guard the station to report this, assuming it would be treated as theft and that the guards would just go and get his gold and bring it back to him. Yeah. But the guards were like, well, actually, hang on here. They went down and found more gold in the safe and now are looking at going, well, where did this come from and why is it here? So there's now a wider so that, so that conversation and in, investigation. That, that the €400,000 worth of gold was not the party's entire cache of gold, which means that they've actually got gold probably in excess of half a million euro, which then over only further accentuates the question mm. as to how, how they pulled and then where are, where are the cash assets yeah as you um, say Claire so this, this kind of then brings the point because we, we're already in a situation Claire where um, if you were uh, running in a general election that you were only required like there are electoral spending limits but those mm. limits only kick in from the day the election is called mm. so you could spend loads of money before the official calling of the election and it wouldn't count as electoral spending but if you're the National Party and you don't hold any public offices, you're not really required to publish your accounts either. So it's possible that you could at least borrow hundreds of thousands of euro from somebody. Maybe it's a, a wealthy benefactor who wants to lend you the money because they're not allowed to give it to you outright. You could spend all that money. You could basically circumvent the donations limits by borrowing, circumvent the spending limits by spending it early. And there basically would be no way for Sippo to ever kind of slap you on the wrist until long after the ship has sailed and you've gotten into mm. public office. Hardly ideal. No, it's not ideal. The whole thing is very strange, isn't it? And yeah. I mean, are they going to run or what's going to happen? You know, we haven't heard anything about them. Mm. They're not coming out talking on um, on any like local issues or countrywide mm. issues or anything. Well, and they, who, they would see immigration as a countrywide issue. Well, they would, yeah, of course, I suppose. But, yeah. um, you know, look, the suspicions as to where the money came from are very worrying. And that brings us on to the next story, which is the electrical or the electoral commission yeah. will mm. they come under that umbrella will mm. they be able to will they be able to have the power to delve into mm. the money before the election yeah. i mean it certainly needs to be looked at yeah. it's really? a it's a gap this is it it basically seems like although every political party is required to publish accounts that there's no means of sanction if you don't hold any elected office so because okay. the national party has never had a TD or a senator or a councillor or an MEP elected yeah. that they are basically beyond sippo's reach so you can just break the the, the rules sense. and and not face any sanction at all which, yeah. which then means that you could spend, you could circumvent all the rules until such time as you get an officeholder elected. Mm. By the time you've got the officeholder elected, you can't, you can't kick them out of office for a financial breach after mm -hmm. the fact. So it's kind of hard to imagine. A bit imagine, of a grey really. area, yeah. and a bit of a loophole. And interestingly, again, because we were talking around this new electoral commission Claire just mentioned there, and it's sort of like, we need to be a little bit clearer then in terms of what SIPO is responsible for and what the Electoral Commission yeah. will be will be responsible for. And this is a full page, well, half page article with Art O'Leary, who's the new chief executive of the Electoral Commission in the Sunday Independent today, written by Hugh O'Connell. And again, they get into the, you know, the fact that uh, SIPO had no powers to penalise uh, the National Party over the, those those revelations as such um, and talks about then where where the Electoral Commission is going to go um, and what their powers will be. They, mm. They're going to have a, 
a team of about 50, 50 people. Um, but what's interesting in here as well, they, their initial task is to determine how many extra TDs yeah. uh, we're going to need we're and where are we one. putting That's them? exactly? five weeks away. And we, yeah. it, well, is it? Because again, the, the, yeah, see, they the weren't end, only clear the end of in August this. is when they have to, to come back with the report. Right. So, yeah. Um, so they're saying that they're going to have, potentially we'll have as many um, as 21 more TDs, bringing us up to about 181. Yeah. Um, to, to blend in with the new population side of things. So. Uh, if you want a, a little bit of uh, insight if this is the sort of thing that people care about I don't expect it to be 181 because generally speaking the doll has an even number of TDs because if for example you had 181 you could elect a Count Corla out of that number and mm. then you could be left with a house of 180 which could prospectively Very be deadlocked true. politicized yeah, the Count yeah, So routinely they reflect they uh, recommend an, an even, even number. number so that when you take out the count there's an odd number that there's there's never a, a break yeah. in it. So uh, an artillery says here it could be somewhere between 172 and 181. A yeah. uh, yeah. couple of texts coming in about cosmetic surgery actually and this uh, this really reflects the, the varying experiences that people have had. Uh, Steo in Dublin says I am 37 I've had my teeth and hair done no problems whatsoever teeth doesn't limit what you can eat over there I was there for a week, had my consultation here in Dublin because the dentist flies over twice a year. So he had a very positive experience. Somebody else says I had a big job done on all my teeth in Turkey about eight grand. Spent about 25,000 correcting that work in Ireland over the following two to three years plus a lot of pain and discomfort which proves that it works for some but not mm. for others. Uh, loads more to come in the papers including uh, whether it is safe to walk the streets of the capital city. We're talking about that more with Claire and Breda. More back after this. 11.47 on the record. Gavin Riley with you till one o'clock this lunchtime on News Talk. 87 106 is the number for your WhatsApps. If you're on X, which is still Twitter.com, but it's, apparently it's called X now, uh, other Greek letters to follow. Um, it, but if you're not a fan of algebraically titled uh, social networks, and the hashtag is still on the record, NT, if you'd like to get in touch with that uh, by those means. Uh, Brita Brown and Claire Ronan still with me in studio. Also joined now on the line uh, by former guard detective Pat Mowry, because th- there is understandably a lot of uh, pieces in the papers this week about whether it's safe uh, in basically to walk the streets of Dublin. We all now are aware of the advice given by the American Embassy for tourists, basically not to walk around solo or not to have any visible signs of wealth, apparently. Um, Pat Mary, I wanted to get your thoughts on all of this just as a, as a former member of Angarda Shiakona about what can be done about all of this. And I'll start with what might be an obvious question. Um, would having more guards on the beat uh, be a help to make Dublin feel safer? Yeah, it would be very effective. And I know when I joined the guards, I was stationed in Donnybrook first. And you didn't see the inside of a patrol car or anything like that for a long, long time. You were on the beat, you were given your beat card and you were put on certain beats around uh, Donnybrook. You had an inspector who came and checked you on your beat, checked your notebook and signed it and that. And uh, it was it, uh, you would always have two guards on the beat together. And it was fantastic because you did get to know the shops and the people and the businesses and you did know her. Let's say, not that there was that many living around Donnybrook, but you knew where all the, any sort of dodgy character lived. But you also knew where the judges lived or people of note. And uh, so it was, uh, you can't beat uh, guards on the beat. It does make uh, an impression uh, visually. But not only that, it makes a big contribution to the guards as an, an organisation itself because that's where you learn your trade. Mm-hmm. The guards learn his trade and get information and meet with the public and meet with businesses and you know yeah. that's how it that's what it happens so like if you don't have guards on the beat you're missing out on that very valuable piece piece of policing if that is the case know, then, and I'm sorry to interrupt you if that is the case then what, what do you think is the hindrance towards having more guards on the beat because the one thing that we've seen a lot yeah. of this week is people pointing out that even if you spend a few hours around the city centre that you often simply just don't see them you don't see them you don't see them in any town and uh, like I live in Mullingar and you'd see the odd time you'd see them but 
you don't see that. I think it's the same all over the country. You don't see them. And that's the reason being is because they're probably administratively uh, cripples, like, you know, uh, they have a lot of work to do on Pulse and that, and, and it maybe prohibits them from going out, you know. But look, you need more people on the beat, and you need more guards uh, trained. And uh, I know the government is trying to do that, and Temple Moore is doing his best to facilitate them, and... Uh, but people are just not joining up. And one of the big things is, is the pay for uh, guards training. I don't know, it's 100, was it 134 euro or something a week or something, something crazy like, you know. That's and, for people who uh, are in I, Templemore who are still undergoing their training. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it's like, it's, it's, if you have someone who really genuinely wants to be a guard and but may have a mortgage or loans or whatever, like a family, you know, because you can now join up to the age of 34. like So people will, may find themselves in, in, in with a family. And, and, and yeah. It just doesn't work out. It doesn't all make sense. Like, you know, you have to make it attractive. But it is a fantastic job. It is a fantastic way of life. But it has to be managed properly. And, uh, you know, but there are, you can't, the, uh, the guard organization is, it can, can, can tackle any problem. And we saw it there, let's say, going back years with, John Gilligan and his gang and how he was brought to heel, the Kinnahans, how they were brought to heel, the problems in Drada with uh, that feuding gang, mm. the problems in Limerick, the guards stood up to the to the place and done their business. And that was only done because there was a, an intelligence-led strategy put in place uh, and executed. And that's what needs to be done in, in Dublin city centre, really, and it needs to be done every district, I believe, mm. in the country, every policing district should have a strategy to tackle the problems that exist in those districts, policing problems. Do you, right, think, you, know? do you think, though, that that template will work in the likes of Dublin because, and maybe I'm incorrect in this, but that it doesn't seem like there is a broader um, strategy being undertaken by some elements within Dublin city centre, that rather than it being the result of uh, a gang feud where there are two sides that are clearly, you know, Almost literally gunning yeah, for each other. Yeah, no, that, that yeah, no, look, just has a more of an antisocial behaviour problem, and and yeah, it's an antisocial behaviour and a drug problem, and that's that's the issues that face the guards. Can they tackle that? Most certainly can tackle it. Yes, and uh, there are fantastic planners and let's say pre-thinkers in the guards that can put all together these type of strategies. But and I think the minister has said it herself they're getting together or they have got together all the. Uh, stakeholders that are affected by this anti-social behaviour and drugs and that. And, and, we, and that's the right way to go about this, to sit down and ask them, what, what is the problem? What do you want to feed on? This, that, the other. So they can incorporate that into their plan. Mm. Uh, but if it is, let's say, a drug problem, uh, you know, you have to bring in other agencies, like, you know, drug awareness and all these, these let's say, because when these people are maybe arrested or brought to court and this, that, you'll see that a lot of these people have mental illness problems. They have you know what I mean? There's a certain element of just pure bad, you know, so that it'll be up to a judge to decide at the end of the day, what will I do with these, this person? Like, you know. So is there a certain element so then up to this point, if, if these things haven't been tackled, is it simply for the want of willpower? Well, it, it's like everything else in the guards and I've seen over the years when it's a big kick up about it. Oh, geez, we better do something about it now, you know, that type of thing. And it is a problem. And it is now sort of, you could say, international because it was only last week I was reading the the, the hotel and American tourists to be not walk down the Connell Street on their own and all this, that and the other, which is a terrible indictment on our country, like, you know. It is really like, you know, when 
the guards can solve the problem, but it's not just the guards. It's, you know, other organisations, let's say drug treatment uh, centres, and that's like you have to buy into this. The judiciary have to buy into it. You know, the, the businesses have to buy into it. They all have to say, look, if there is a problem here. What can we do to, to help the guards, you know, uh, tackle this problem? Former Guard Detective Pat Murray, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us this morning uh, on the record on News Talk. That brings us to 11.53. Just a few minutes to talk to um, Claire Ronan and, and Breda Brown about that. And Breda, I was really struck by that point about um, the allowance paid to um, trainee guards in Templemore. And then particularly then if you are in one career and you decide to retrain and you do have mm. family obligations or you've got a you know a mortgage or a, a couple of kids... No one can afford to live on the that weekly allowance. No, and this, this is the problem. Um, and also opening up the the age band really does help. And I think we should we should see more of that because people older, you know, people get into a, a different mindset maybe in their forties and want to retrain and and go back. So we should look at that. Um, there's a target of a, a thousand new guardy this year. They're not going to meet it. Um, we had eighty nine new recruits that come out last week, and we're at about twelve thousand at the moment. But look, there's so many issues here. I don't know where that ten million is going to go. That was announced by um, Minister McEntee during the week it feels like a bit of a, a drop in the ocean yeah. you know it really does um, and I really feel I walk the streets of Dublin just all day yeah, every day but I really by, feel haven't we already had we've had a visit by the US President and a few other high profile industries this year doesn't that gen- generally tend to run up a 10 million overtime of course it does itself, of course so. it does absolutely yeah. but I think there's there's different levels of crime in uh, across the country not just Dublin you've got the whole thuggery aspect you know the, the antisocial and the petty crime and all the rest and then you've got drink related crime you know mm. so there's two different elements there we need to look at um, but the embassy's coming out during the week and talking about uh, you know mind yourself watch yourself uh, don't uh, show yeah. any displays of wealth. I mean, that that goes for any capital city you ever visit. I mean, anyone who's been to yeah. Barcelona is, knows mm. that they yeah. need to take care of pickpockets. Of course, there will be pockets in any area that you're probably advised to stay away from and don't go after yeah. dark. Um, but I thought some of the some of the advice was yeah. a little bit disingenuous. Like, you were sort of going, that applies anywhere. I kind of thought it was just kind of common sense stuff that we were sort of treating it as Correct. a moral panic, Claire, when yeah. really it was pretty straightforward advice I thought. Well yeah I mean look would you go anywhere and and show vulgar displays of wealth or any displays of wealth but there does seem to be a sort of underbelly a sinister underbelly around Mm. uh, Dublin city centre with gangs of youths and you know of course there should be more guards of course there should be tougher sentences but I think John Lonergan made a really good point in the uh, Sunday Independent article where he says that there's a striking lack of community infrastructure in the poorest areas of the community Mm-hmm. and of the capital and they these are these teenagers that have seemed to have suffered from covid of mm. not being educated and all mm. of that but can i just like one more Absolutely point sure. this is not a, just a dublin problem and for people living in the west of ireland or all over the country we had a vicious assault in screen in sligo um, and I'm sure you all remember yes. Tom Nyland, who's yeah. still in hospital. And what I really felt so sorry for the guards I spoke to after that. It's 20 minutes from Sligo Town Garda Station out to screen. The local Garda stations in the communities aren't being manned the way they used to be. Mm-hmm. And that is having a massive effect on vulnerable areas. Very fair point. Uh, Claire Ronan of Ocean FM and Breda Brown, uh, co-founder and communications director of Unique Media. Thank you both very much for joining us through that whistle-stop tour of the Sunday Papers. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Transformation always disrupts, but it doesn't always need to be disruptive. On News Talk.